0: To be back, and uh, I, it's been my prayer all week that uh, that we wouldn't be here to to celebrate the work of God's people, but that we would be here to celebrate the God who works through His people, uh, and that we would make much of God, not not much of God's people, because our God deserves to be made much of. I, uh, I got here this morning, and I was uh, I was proudly wearing my Oregon Ducks jacket after a good win last night. And I, <laughs> I came in the door and the Oprah's boys were out in the lobby and uh, so I said hi to him thinking, you know, kind of expecting like, oh, hey, we haven't seen you for a while. And so I said hi to Eli and he looks at me just with a lot of contempt in his face and he says, I don't like your jacket. (laughs) (laughs) So it's good to be back. (laughs) A um, couple things I want to just share with you with regard to Lapine, and then just with a little bit of time that we have left, I just briefly want to want to look at some characteristics of a disciple because we we share common vision uh, in that we, we exist to make disciples in our city and of all nations who are sent out to proclaim and embody the gospel for the glory of God. So uh, I want to look at what it is to be a disciple today. But uh, before I do that, um, we we've just had a had a pretty cool almost first year in Lapine and. Uh, it just seems like God has uh, God has knit our hearts together with with these guys, and, and as much as they say that they love us, we love them too, and have found them to be just great brothers and sisters and partners in the ministry. And uh, one thing I was thinking about this morning, um, just shortly after we had all uh, kind of made the decision that, that this was right and moving forward, and that the Lord was calling our family to and I, I went down. Uh, there for a men's group, it was probably about this time last year, I don't know, Tony and Kurt, I can't remember if you guys were there, if you remember this, but, but I came down for a men's group and and I remember, and I've sure shared this with some of you, may sound familiar, but but we have a guy named Mike in our church and he's a really cool guy, um, but he's, uh, he's got this long handlebar mustache and a ponytail and, and he walks with a cane and he's hunched over from a bad motorcycle wreck years ago and you just look at him and you can tell he's an interesting guy that's lived an interesting life and Uh, A little bit socially awkward, but we've uh, gotten to be great friends in the time that we've been down there. And and I remember very specifically at the end of this men's Bible study, uh, I can't remember what we were talking about, but I just remember Mike uh, looked at me and he just kind of had some tears in his eyes. And and he said, you know, I look around Lapine and I see broken and hurting people everywhere. And uh, I know the Bible tells me to love them, but I don't know how to love them. And then he looks at me through his tears and he says, will you help us love our community? And I'll probably never forget that. It was just a really impacting thing in that moment as we think about this idea that that God has called us to make disciples. And certainly uh, much of the making of disciples involves loving people and sometimes loving people uh, maybe who are difficult to love. Uh, And so it's just something that's really stuck with me uh, over this last year and as we uh, have been spending the last year really laying uh, the groundwork for the, the call of the believer, the call to uh, be disciples who make disciples. I, I think of that often, of just that statement, will, will you help us love our community? Uh, and Lapine's an interesting community because uh, it's very spread out. Uh, geographically, the Lapine is kind of big. Population-wise, not so much, but people are pretty spread out. And, and there's not much of a sense of community in, in the town. And I, th- I think a lot of people go to a place like Lapine uh, maybe because they just want to be away from the hustle and bustle of just everyday society. And so it makes for a little bit of a challenge sometimes to to find people that need to be loved. And uh, the people that you do find that, that need to be loved uh, sometimes uh, just have difficulties. We have uh, right near our church, uh, we're on this little side street off of Highway 97. And right across uh, the side street is a, an RV park. And it's the kind of an RV park. People live there uh, full time. And then uh, right across Highway 97 is another RV park, and people live there uh, full-time. And uh, we spend a lot of time praying that God will help us to love the people in the RV parks and just their kind of baggage and and messiness, if you will, that that comes along with that. And in the last few months, we've seen, uh, we've been able to make some connections and establish some relationships uh, with people that uh, are down and out in life, and life has been hard for them, and they have difficulties probably that most of us don't have. And so... We've been asking ourselves and praying much that God would just show us how to, how to love people that are different than us. Uh, not worse than us, but just different than us, and how, how we might love them, uh, even though it maybe is difficult uh, from an experiential standpoint to relate to them, that, that God would help us. Uh, those are the people that God has put in front of us, uh, of whom we are to make disciples. And so uh, we would covet your prayers, uh, that you could pray along with us, that we might just be able to love the people that God brings our way. Um, because sometimes the people that God brings our way are not the people that we would choose to be brought towards us, but God in his sovereignty uh, is bringing people to us, and God's bringing people here and puts people in your path and my path every day uh, who need to uh, hear the gospel, who need to be shown the gospel, and it's incumbent upon us as Christians to be able to embody and proclaim the gospel uh, to everybody with whom we come in contact on a day-to-day basis. And so we would just covet your prayers uh, for us in that regard. Uh, so I want to just really briefly take a look at uh, several scriptures. Normally we'd have a have a passage that we might camp out in and look at, but, but I want to just rapid fire some scriptures at you today. And if you want to try to keep up turning pages, you can. And if you want to just listen, that's okay too. But I want to look at really uh, five characteristics of a disciple. And I kind of wrestled this week, you know, Roy and I had, had planned this a couple of months ago where we would trade places on a Sunday. And uh, as is uh, sometimes the case, you, you kind of wait till the last minute of, okay, I got, you know, what am I going to? I had two months to think about this, but really waited till last week to kind of think about, you know, God, what would you have me share with my brothers and sisters in Prineville? And, and uh, so many things came to mind. And it really was difficult this week to kind of narrow down, like, you know, what, what do we want to look at? And, and I really I have this goal in my mind that, that I wanted to, to be encouraging today and uh, leave you guys feeling encouraged. And uh, so just as I was wrestling through this week with uh, what to share with you guys, I came across... Uh, this, this message of characteristics of a disciple that we shared at our church uh, here back in the summer as we were going through a series of laying out vision. If it's our vision to make disciples, it's probably important that we know what a disciple is. Uh, if we're going to make it, it's important that we have a blueprint. And so, so I just put together five characteristics of a disciple. This is not exhaustive by any means, but just kind of as I searched scripture, just five things that stood out to me uh, that are inherent in the life of a disciple of Christ. So the first thing that I want to look at is that disciples surrender. Uh, and and there's, there's a call to the Christian to surrender our wills, to surrender our lives to God. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says this. He says, and he died for all, speaking of Jesus, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. And this is just kind of the basics of the gospel. Jesus didn't die so that you and I could go on living the same life that we've always lived. Jesus didn't live the life that he lived. He didn't live a life of perfection and he didn't die an unjust death so you and I could continue on the same way that we continued on prior to coming to faith in Christ. And that's just very simply a message of the Bible. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And here's the thing, We, we talk about the gospel a lot in Lapine, and I know you talk about the gospel a lot here in Prineville as well. And the gospel is the good news, and the gospel is not just part of the Bible. The gospel is the whole Bible from beginning to end. The whole Bible is good news that God redeems sinners, that God regenerates sinners. God rescues those in need of rescue, you and I. And Paul, as he writes to the Galatians and as he writes to the church at Corinth, he brings about this idea that that it's not I who live, it's not my will that I live for. It's not my own uh, selfish desires that I live for as a Christian. Part of God's sanctifying work in us, part of God's redemption, part of his regeneration is that I don't have to be selfish anymore. I don't have to live for myself. I can live for something or someone greater. I can live for the one who gave everything to redeem me when I couldn't redeem myself. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2 says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but the will of God and there's a lot we can unpack in that short passage there but the point is the fact that Christ suffered in the flesh the fact that Christ renounced his will you remember the scene in the garden before Jesus went to the cross and he says to his father if there's any other way tell me now And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. He submitted to the will of his Father. And in Peter, we're told that since Christ suffered in the flesh, that we should arm ourselves in the same way of thinking. In other words, since Christ renounced his will, since he didn't live for his own glory, since he didn't live for his own desires, that we, as the people of Christ, should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. That we would live for the rest of the time, in other words, the rest of our time on this earth, not for human passions, but for the will of God. And I would ask you this morning, what is it that you're passionate about? And, And probably if we pulled the room, everybody might have a different answer as to what we're passionate about. And maybe what we're passionate about today might not be the thing that we're passionate about tomorrow. Maybe it changes moment to moment or from circumstance to circumstance, but what is it that you're passionate about? And I'll tell you that what I'm passionate about most of the time is me. I'm passionate about me. And the call to the Christian is not to be passionate about self, not to live for self, but to live for the will of God, to live for him who for our sake died and for him who was raised. Disciples surrender their will. The second thing I want to look at is that disciples believe. And this idea of belief, when the Bible talks about belief, you guys, it's not, it's not talking about knowledge. It's not talking about mental assent, if you will. It's not talking about simply acknowledging the existence of God or acknowledging the truth of a matter. But when the Bible talks about belief, it talks about believing to the point that it leads to action. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8 say this. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but for holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. And my my point in reading this in the context of belief, Paul isn't necessarily talking about belief here. He's talking about sanctification, but he reminds us that it's God who gives us the Holy Spirit. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that we would be able to understand the truth of the gospel. We cannot understand, the Bible tells us, the truth of the gospel apart from God's spirit at work in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says that you can't say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. And it's not that you and I can't say that, but we can't say that with conviction and with belief unless God by his spirit enables us to recognize that he's God and that he's sovereign and that he's Lord of all. And so in God's will for us to be sanctified, which is just a big Bible word that, that says that, that we're in the process of being made holy from the point that we come to faith in Christ to the point that we're face to face with him, that process in between is our sanctification, our process of being made holy and all that comes with it. Here's the hope that the believer has and something that causes us to believe is that we have the Holy Spirit. God calls us to live in a certain manner. And in this passage, Paul is talking about sexual immorality and holiness. And here's, here's the cool thing about how God operates. God doesn't say, don't do that. Don't do that. Do these things and then leave it at that. God says, here's the way that I've called you to live. And I'm going to enable you to live that way because I'm going to give you my spirit to empower you to live obedient lives. And so our belief in God isn't just a a head knowledge that God exists. Uh, Our belief in God isn't even that, okay, I believe God exists, and and if I don't live obediently to him, he's going to be really mad at me, and he's going to punish me, or things are going to be hard for me if I don't do it God's way. Our belief in God is so much more, so much more than that. God gives us his spirit working inside of us from the inside out to transform us, to renew us, to regenerate us, to enable our belief. The Bible tells us that it's God who is the author of our faith and God who is the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. And so your faith doesn't come from you. My faith doesn't come from me. Our faith comes from God. And and our faith that comes from God leads to a way of living. It's not just a belief in that we read the pages of Scripture and we acknowledge it to be true, but it's a belief that leads to a way of living. Luke 6.40 says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Think about that. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is kind of this idea of sanctification, again, that, that God is in the process of making us holy. God is in the process of redeeming our fleshly, human, selfish desires. And Luke tells us, that we're not above our teacher, our teacher is Jesus, but everyone, as we are fully trained, we will be like our teacher. We are in the process as a disciple of becoming like the one that we follow. And that, that could be true no matter who you might follow. We're all becoming something, we're all becoming somebody. That The question is, who, who is it that we're becoming like, and who is it that we're following <coughs> Romans 6.22 says, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and in its end is eternal life. And Paul uses this, this idea of slavery throughout his writings, but not necessarily, uh, not always in a negative sense. Paul uses the idea of slavery in a negative sense when he talks about being slave to sin, but he uses slavery in a positive sense, if you will, when he talks about becoming slaves to To God. And and again, Jesus didn't die so that we could continue on living the same old life that we lived prior to our coming to faith in Him. Jesus didn't die so we could continue on in our slavery and our bondage to sin, but He died so that we could have a new life, a different life, and that we could become slaves of His. One of the ideas that you see in the Bible uh, throughout its pages is the idea of being a, a bond servant. And if you don't know what a bondservant is, in short, a bondservant is a willing slave. Somebody who was a slave and after their time of slavery came to an end, they loved their master. And so they decided to continue on in service to their master. And this is kind of the positive side of slavery that Paul talks about when he talks about being slaves to God. And there's an end to our slavery to God. And it says that it leads to our sanctification and the end is eternal life. And at the end of the day for all of us, we just want to have life. We want to have joy. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. And so all of life for all of us is chasing the things that make us happy, chasing the things that fulfill us, chasing the things that bring us joy. And what's counterintuitive about the gospel is that that God tells us in his word that living our lives not for our own selfish desires, but living our lives for him is what's ultimately going to bring us fulfillment what's ultimately going to bring us joy what's ultimately going to make us happy yet we spend so much of our lives living for our own desires and things that okay i know you say that god but, but this is really going to make me happy over here so i'm going to i'm going to spend some time pursuing this thing instead of you and sometimes those things are even good things that we chase after. Sometimes there are good things that we pursue that we turn into ultimate things. And so as we think about the fact that a disciple believes, well, what is it that you believe? Do you believe it to be true that ultimate joy, ultimate fulfillment is found only in a relationship with Jesus Christ? And if you're a disciple of Christ, you've discovered that to be true. 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6 Paul writes this. He says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And Paul is telling us here, I'm not sufficient to discover my own joy. I'm not sufficient. Even to live the way that God has called me to live apart from his spirit. You're not sufficient to live the way that God has called you to live apart from his spirit enabling you to live the way that he's called you to live. And that's why we can watch these prayer cast videos and you don't ever hear people in any of these videos asking for God to change their circumstances. It doesn't seem. You don't ever hear people in these videos asking God to make it less difficult to take the hard things away. But what you hear people asking for is that they would be able to to faithfully and boldly proclaim the gospel in the midst of adversity. That They would be able to face difficulty, that they would be able to face persecution. And I'll tell you what, I'm not sufficient for that. You're not sufficient for that. They're not sufficient for that. I avoid suffering at all costs, and so do you. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody wants to be persecuted. Nobody wants to sign up for something that's difficult. We don't do that. But when we realize our sufficiency, and we believe it to be true that our sufficiency comes from Christ then we can walk into difficulties and we can walk into situations where we might suffer and we might be persecuted, not because we're gluttons, but because we know that God is with us and we know that his spirit is enabling us. That's the incredible thing to me about watching those prayer cast videos, is that those those people, every single one of them, whether they say it or not, they realize that they're not sufficient for the task at hand, and that's why they pray. That's why they ask us to pray. Because we don't have that sufficiency in and of ourselves. The third thing I want to look at is that disciples obey. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And I've already talked about this idea of redemption or regeneration. But something that happens in the life of the Christian when they come to faith is that, that God makes them into... The new creation. The old you goes away. and that, What I don't think that means is that it goes away never to be seen again. But what I think Paul is getting at here is that we're not enslaved to our old way of living. Or we don't have to be enslaved to our old way of living. There's not a single one of us that don't wake up every day battling our flesh. That's true for all of us. And it will be true for our whole lives on this earth that we battle our flesh. And we battle our old person, so to speak. So what I don't think Paul is saying here is that at your moment of coming to faith, that your battle with sin goes away, your battle with self or your battle with flesh goes away. I don't think that that's true. But what is true is that we're no longer enslaved to the old self. We're no longer enslaved to our former passions, as the Bible talks about. And that a new way of life is before us. And not only is it before us, but God in his sovereign plan enables us by his spirit to live in a new way of life. Titus 3, 1-8, if you want to turn there, it says this. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So do you get that? That's your list. That's your list. Be obedient, be ready for good works, don't speak evil, don't argue, be gentle, and be courteous. That's your list. And then Paul goes on to say, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's another list. That's, That's not so good of a list. So Paul gives us a list of Here's what we need to remind people of how to live. And then he gives us this other list. Remember how you used to live. Here's how you should live. Here's how you used to live. And this is true of all of us. And then the big but. And he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration of the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And so Paul gives us this list of how we should live, reminds us of how we used to live, and then gives us yet another reminder that says the only way that you can live the way that you should live is because of the mercy of God, because of the kindness of God, because of the Spirit of God. So there's this call to the Christian to be obedient, to live the way that God calls us to live, but what's our motivation for our Obedience. Am I trying to earn favor with God? Because you can't do that. We can't earn favor with God no matter how good we are, no matter how we live. It's not good enough to earn favor with God. Is my motivation because I'm afraid that God's going to strike me down if I don't do what he says? That might be my motivation today, but it might not be my motivation tomorrow. I might wake up tomorrow morning and I just might decide I'm just going to live for myself because I can't, can't live the way that God calls me to live. That's why Paul reminds us that there was a time, Christian, for you who have come to faith in Christ, there there was a time that this bad part of the list, that was you. And if you have yet to come to faith in Christ, that describes you. And then Paul reminds us that according to God's mercy, that he saved us. According to God's mercy. He's regenerated us. He's redeemed us. He's made us new. According to God's mercy, he's given us his spirit to live the way that he calls us to live. So we don't have to muster up the strength or the courage on our own to do something that we're probably not going to be motivated to do tomorrow anyway. And he reminds us that this is trustworthy. And he says, I insist on these things. This is a strong language used by Paul. Paul's not saying, hey, you should probably tell people this, this is a good idea. He says, I insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This is the life of the Christian is to be devoted to good works. And we're devoted to good works because of the gospel, because we've believed the gospel, because we've responded to the gospel. We now carry the gospel. And that's our our good works and the things that come along with it. The fourth thing I want to look at is that disciples love. And that, that might seem like a no-brainer. But disciples love. Disciples love God and disciples love God's people. And one leads to the other. And, and the order is important. We, we love God because he loved us. And we love God's people because God loves his people. And that's, it, it doesn't go the other way. We can't love people and love God. We love God and we love people. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. Jesus says this, he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus' own words, which might seem kind of harsh, but they're in the Bible, basically says, if you don't love, you can't love anything more than me and still be my disciple. You can't love anything more than me and still Follow me. Then he says, "Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it." And this is one of the, these ironies of, of the Bible. The Bible's full of irony. In order to find life, we're told that we have to lose our life. And, and what, what does that mean? And if we lose our life, then we'll find it. And what Jesus is talking about here is it seems intuitive that maybe we would love our families more than anything and everything. It seems, seems right. It seems like that should be good. But Jesus tells us that life is found in one place, and it's only found in Him. And we we spend so much of our existence, as I've already talked about, chasing life. Whatever is life to us, we we spend much of our existence chasing life. And 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 the counterintuitive thing about the Bible is that when we submit to Jesus, when we surrender to Jesus, when we live not for our own selfish desires, not for the things that we want, not for our own will, but for His, that's where we find. Life And when we love God supremely, when we love God above all, more than we love even our own lives, the Bible tells us that that's where we find life. That's what it means when we lose our life, when we surrender completely to the will of God for us. And that's where we find life. We don't find life in a relationship or relationships. We don't find life in what we do for a living. We don't find life in our hobbies and the things that we do for fun. Those are good things, good gifts given to us by a good God, but those things don't bring us life. What brings us life is knowing God and we love God because we know God. And because we know God and we love God, then we're freed to love his people. 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17, John writes this, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And what John is saying to us here is that the things of the world, think about the desires of the flesh. What is it that you desire in your flesh? the desires of the eyes, when you see things and you say, I've got to have that, or the pride of life, think, think about those things. John tells us that along with the world, those things are passing away. So what happens when you're looking to these things for your fulfillment and all of a sudden they're here today and they're gone tomorrow, your, your world is turned upside down, my world is turned upside down. He says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. When we love God supremely, when we love God more than we love even our own lives, that's not going to be here today and gone tomorrow. That's abiding love. That's an abiding relationship with our Father. And when God is what matters to us supremely, a relationship with our Heavenly Father, when that's the supreme thing in our life, when that's paramount in our life that naturally leads to a love for God's people. Apart from that, we we, we can't love each other. We we don't want to love each other. I, I will love you in my humanity, in my flesh, as long as it works for me. As long as it benefits me, then we're good. But the moment that it stops benefiting me to, to love you, quote unquote, then I'm out. And that's the way that we work in our flesh. But when we when we love God supremely more than anything else, more than even our own lives, it leads to the ability to love God's people with the same kind of love with which God loves us. Continuing in 1 John. Chapter 3, verses 11 to 16, John writes this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that if the world hates you, we know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so John, he's very black and white in his writing, and John will say things that that if you don't love people, then you don't love God. He, He draws a line in the sand and says, you're either on this side or you're on this side. He says that we, we've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. That's part of the, the basic message of the gospel, that, that we love one another. John tells us in his gospel, he writes in his gospel rather, that people will know that we are disciples of Jesus. How? By the way that we love one another. right? So, so this, is, this is basic Christianity. And John tells us that we know that we've passed from death to life, because we love the brothers. Now, the way that nature works is that things go from life to death. That's the way the natural world works, but again, part of the the irony of the gospel is that in God's economy, things can go from death to life. Matter of fact, we all, prior to faith in Christ, right out of the gate, the Bible tells us that we're dead. And that the only way that we have life is that We come to faith in Christ. He calls us and we respond to him in faith. But John tells us that we can know, one of the ways that we can know that we've crossed from death to life is because we love the brothers. And we could spend a lot of time talking about uh, what it is to love and we just don't have time for that today. But suffice it to say, uh, at the end of the passage that we just read, John says that we know love because he laid down his life for us, because Jesus laid down his life for us. That's the ultimate picture of love. And if that's true, Christian, if someone has laid down their life for you, then our response to that truth is that we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And again, this, we don't wake up in the morning thinking, who am I going to take a bullet for today? Or We don't think that way. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, he writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this love, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then a couple of verses later. 1 John 4, 19 to 21, he writes this. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his own brother and whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And and what I I don't think John is saying in all of this is that it's a requirement that if you love God that you have to put up with your your fellow brothers and sisters. Sometimes we think of it that way. That's not what John is saying, but the result of loving God is that you love God's people. And there's a difference there. There's a difference between me putting up with people that maybe I'd rather not be around or me putting up with people who get under my skin or putting up with people that are different than me. That's one thing. But what John is getting at is that when you love God, the response to loving God that flows out of you is that you become a lover of people. And that's different than tolerating, and that's different than putting up with. That's a supernatural kind of love that can only come as a result of loving God. And so if we don't love God, it's impossible to love people. And that's what John is getting at. So if you want to love people, then love God. The last characteristic of a disciple that I want to look at is that a disciple serves. And again, this this isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but just things that kind of stood out to me in putting this together. So a disciple serves. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Even as the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the one that holds everything together, the Bible says, came not to be served. And if there's anyone that ever deserved to be served, it was Jesus. But the Bible says that he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life. As a ransom for many. Hebrews chapter 9, 13 and 14 says this For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? And all of this, all of this, it always goes back to believing and responding to the gospel. If it's true, not if because I'm questioning, but if in a logical sense, if it's true that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and if it's true that he gave his life so that you and I could be redeemed, regenerated, renewed, sanctified... If it's true that he came to purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God, then we should serve the living God. And this idea kind of comes back around to what we touched upon in the beginning of renouncing our own wills and our own desires and our own flesh and our own passions and embracing the will and the desires and the passions of Jesus who died for us. And what we just read tells us that when we embrace our own, our own set of rules for living, that, that that leads to dead works. But when we embrace God's way of living and when we're passionate about the things that God is passionate about and when we love and serve God and we love and serve his people, that leads us to life. luke chapter 14 this is similar to another passage that we read today but luke fourteen twenty six and 27 says if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple and so in this idea of serving it comes along the idea of sacrificing and this is in step with the character of Christ, because Jesus sacrificed. Jesus sacrificed so you and I could bridge the gap between death and life. And if it's true that he sacrificed as his disciples, as those that follow him, then we should live lives that sacrifice for the good of others. And when you read the epistles of the New Testament, Paul's writings, Paul was a guy that knew what it meant to sacrifice Not because he enjoyed hardship, but because he was a lover of God that led him to be a lover of people. And because of his love of God and his love of God's people, he lived a life that sacrificed, that lived a life probably more than than any other person apart from Jesus Christ, lived a life that, that gave, that served so that others could come to know Christ. Luke chapter 14, just a few verses later in verse 33 says that if anyone does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. And and again, we see in Paul's writings where he talks about all of the things in his life prior to coming to faith in Christ. And Paul Paul had some things. Paul was somebody. He was somebody before he became nobody. And he would speak of his former life saying that "I, I counted all as a loss. I count it all as rubbish, he talks about, as garbage, for the sake of knowing Christ. And as a disciple serves and a disciple sacrifices, there's this element also of a disciple goes. A disciple goes into the world. And I've said before, and I'll say again, that could be across the street or across an ocean. I don't know that it always matters, but disciples go. And if you're a disciple of Christ, most of you are probably going to go to work tomorrow. Go to work knowing that you're a disciple of Christ and knowing that God has placed you there to serve. and That God has placed you there maybe even to sacrifice for the sake of those that you work with. God has placed you there to love those people that you work with in their difficulty and in maybe their messiness with their baggage. Probably got your own set of those things too, but God has placed you there and God has placed you there to be obedient to him. And maybe for some of you here in a few months might be hopping on a plane to go across an ocean and God is allowing you to hop on a plane and go across an ocean so that you can love and serve and sacrifice and be obedient to him and heed the call of the gospel to live the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to embody the gospel. So again, I don't know that it always matters how far we go or where we go. As much as it matters is that in our going, that we go with the intent of being disciples who make disciples. And that's where we share common common vision as, as two churches, that that's what we're about, as being disciples who make disciples. And a lot, lot more that could be said, but we're short on time today, so I'll just end there. I don't know what's happening next, but... Uh, um, Let me pray for us and uh, just thanks you guys for the opportunity for us to come here and just hope that you'd be encouraged today uh, in your discipleship, in your pursuit of Jesus, that he not only calls us, but he enables us by his spirit to live the way that he's called us to live. Let me pray.